Welcome to Equestrian Movement's Fast Do No Harm podcast. I'm your host, Katie Boniface, co-founder of Equestrian Movement with Sarah Gallagher. We work with horse riders who want to build a stronger bond and a deeper connection with their horses. In our first Do No Harm podcast, we discuss with other industry professionals how to work with horses to firstly do no harm and secondly support their mental, emotional and physical well-being throughout the training process so that we have horses that enjoy learning and ask to be ridden. Each episode, we discuss the different influences our training can have and how we can improve our horses' overall athleticism, soundness of mind and body, and emotional fortitude, while strengthening and deepening our relationship with our horses. Each week, I will endeavor to bring to you a new episode on horse riding, training, handling, and husbandry, or an interview with other industry professionals to help you address where and why you might get stuck in creating the beautiful union of dancing souls that is the equestrian sport. Are you ready to kick off today's show? Let's get started. Hey team, Katie here from Equestrian Movement and today we are talking to the fabulously dynamic duo Sarah Schlote and Dr. Steve Peters. Sarah is a registered psychotherapist, Canadian certified counsellor and somatic experience practitioner. I don't even know how she says those words and how she practices this role. She has she holds a trauma-focused master's in counseling psychology and has additional training in EMDR, brain spotting, deep brain reorienting, structural dissociation theory for ego state and parts work, body memory recall, the touch skills training for trauma therapists, the somatic resilience and regulation, early trauma training, touch for attachment, rupture and repair, and trauma-focused equine-facilitated therapy and ecotherapy. She also weaves mindfulness and DBT-inspired skills, as well as psychodynamic therapy, attachment-oriented psychotherapy, gestalt therapy, animal-assisted therapy, and indigenous principles into her work. She has been involved in the field of animal-assisted interventions since 2003, including the development of standards of practice, and is the creator of Equisoma, a training model incorporating somatic experiencing, attachment theory, and polyvagal theory into horse-human interaction professions. Sarah is a sought-after trainer and frequently delivers trainings and workshops throughout the province and Canada on trauma-informed care and treatment. Dr. Steve Peters is a neuroscientist specializing in brain functioning. As a horse brain researcher, he has given numerous equine brain science seminars, presentations throughout the U.S. and Canada, and performed many horse brain dissections for students. He is the co-author with Martin Black of Evidence-Based Horsemanship. He regularly presents at the Best Horse Practices Summit and collaborated with Maddie Butcher on horse head, brain science, and other insights. Dr. Peters recently worked with Mark Rashid and Jim Masterson on a two-day equine brain seminar resulting in a DVD, Your Horse's Brain, a User's Manual. He often presents in joint seminars with Wes Taylor of Wild West Mustang Ranch, demonstrating equine brain science with the help of Mustangs in the arena. Dr. Steve Peters brings an evidence-based approach to horsemanship involving assessing and integrating scientific findings to inform decisions and create best practices in horsemanship. 
scientific findings in the neurofunctioning of the horse's brain and its application increases our ability to understand and read horses. The collaboration of Steve and Sarah has to be one of my favorite things. Over the last year, I've joined them in their masterclass training and learning all things in regards to horse and human neuroanatomy, uh, neuroception, and <laughs> little air quotes, pony vagal theory, uh, neuroplasticity and trauma, co-regulation and attachment, window of tolerance and self-regulation, and interspecies integration. It was one of my favorite trainings to participate in a very long time with regard to horsemanship, with the way that they can bring their two um, you know, experiences and professions together in such a unique and complementary way to support us and our ability to bring best practices and ethical horse training to the best of our ability. You can grab the links to everything that they are doing over the next couple of months in the show notes. They have some really exciting trainings coming up. I'm quite excited to be participating in their next one, which is the Neurobiology of Learning. And then they're holding their masterclass again next year, not to mention what they're doing solo. So without further ado, let's kick off today's show. Hi. Hi, 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 Sarah and Steve. I'm so excited to have this opportunity to talk to you guys. I just went through the training that you guys put together last year and it broke my brain three times over. I had to do, had to do the trainings, each training three times over to try and like absorb everything that you were saying. Uh, before we go too much into it, would you guys be able to introduce yourself and, and what you do? Yeah. Steve, you want to start off? I was going to say, Sarah, you want to start off, but sure. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, uh, I'm Dr. Steve Peters. I'm a neuroscientist. Uh, my background is actually clinical. So I saw patients for about 30 years and spent most of my days looking at neuroimaging and assessing brain functioning. Uh, but I've also always had horses in my life. And of course, once you develop that neurological lens, you, you can't help but see other mammals. And, and reading the peer-reviewed uh, literature in terms of mammalian research, you can't help but have a different angle on how you look at, at things. Now, I was giving horse brain uh, courses and doing brain dissections, and invariably, you know, we would take a break and I'd be followed by three or four people. And they'd say, you know, I couldn't bring this up in class, but all this stuff you talk about, about anxiety and sympathetic arousal and polyvagal and all this other stuff, that's what I feel. And so I thought, you know what, this happens every time. Now, I don't want to work outside the confines of my expertise and I certainly don't want to become everybody's psychotherapist. Um, so I had to find somebody. And I thought long and hard, you know, I really need to find somebody to team with. But where do you find somebody that knows horses and psychology and can bring that all together and trauma? Because most of these people are talking about trauma. So, da-da, I found Sarah. And she can tell you all about herself. 
<laughs> Thanks, Steve. Um, that's a really fantastic introduction. And and I'm in a similar boat. I'm a clinician as well, uh, registered psychotherapist by trade and trauma therapist by trade and have had horses as a grown up. I came into horses a little bit later in life. And like Steve, when you start learning a little bit about mammalian neuroscience and mammalian ethology and how animals live under optimal conditions and what happens in the wild that doesn't really happen in captivity. And I consider humans a captive species as well. If we think about the impacts of like modern socialization and colonization and all these things, you know, and there's domestication for equines, we have a lot of parallels and similarities, although we're obviously different as well, in terms of how adversity impacts us and, and how we cope with adversity and the changes that happen in the nervous system and in the brain and our relationships. Again, like while there are species-based differences, there are a lot of parallels um, because we're all mammals and we evolve to have very different lives than the ones that we have currently. Our biologies are way more ancient than our current circumstances. Um, and it's really humbling. And so it's been really fun to partner with someone like Steve to try to bring some of this really cool knowledge, I find, about our own mammalianness um, to the masses to help us understand our, our horses, our donkeys, our mules, our, our hinnies better and ourselves better. We were talking to Katie earlier, right before we came on the air here. And, and one of the things that was really important to me, and I'd like to drive this point home, actually, is that I knew that Sarah was also a scientist, that she was well-versed in the scientific literature. And my background is evidence-based. And one of the things that was really frustrating, and it had been early on, was that people thought they could listen to books on tape and become a doctor. And so then they take over and, and they add in um, bits and pieces of, you know, mysticism over here and uh, some other ideas over there that are popular, but not necessarily borne out in science. And not to really criticize everyone or anyone, but it, it's so difficult. We get so bombarded with information out there. And we don't know what to pay attention to and what not to pay attention to. And pretty soon, once it gets out in the general public, it's talked about as if it's a truth. And I've, I know of scientists have actually written editorials say, don't say that. I never said that. But somehow, once it's out of the box, it, it sort of gets its own life. So one of the things that Sarah and I wanted to, to drive home in equa science is that it really is evidence-based, and we are two scientists, credentialed scientists, that are presenting this, this information. So I, I, I want to reassure people that they can, that if they took our courses, they'd be getting information that this, that comes from peer-reviewed scientific research. So um, I just wanted to add that my two cents and now I'm off my soapbox. <laughs> uh, and I'll, and I'll speak to, to, to balance that out with this idea of that there are lots of different epistemologies and ontologies, and there are so many different ways of knowing as well. And so one of the things that I also want to remain humble about while also being a super science nerd is that there have been 
vast knowledge systems that have existed way before sort of the advent of Western science. And a lot of things that Western science is demonstrating, actually, some of it has been known for a very long time, and is being sort of rediscovered or re sort of affirmed through the Western science lens. So I think of like a lot of indigenous ways of knowing there's a lot of indigenous knowledge that has come back around. And Western science has gone, hey, this is really cool. We actually have like, Western science has now sort of noticed some of these things as well. What I want to be careful about is that that doesn't mean that now suddenly it's valid because Western science has validated it. You know, like there are different ways of knowing. So it's almost like, how do we recognize, like, I think holding all of that with like a really open heart, you know, and like there's science and then within science, science is also limited by the humans that are doing the science too. I mean, and Steve, you know this too. I mean, there's, we've, we've both talked about articles that have been in peer reviewed journals that were like, how did this get published? <laughs> like, you know, yeah. like some stuff that, you know, the, the conclusions that are drawn, I would never make those conclusions. You know, there, there, there's a lot of, there can be bias in science as well. It's not a perfect system. And so what I think we're trying to say is um, Steve and I do our very best to summarize the literature and bring light to that. And if we're going to say something, try to have it be based in what we do know, you know, and, and speak tentatively about the things that we don't uh, and acknowledge that we don't have the full picture. And here's what we do know for sure to try to dispel some myths that are known to be myths because those are also that also does exist you know and i think that's a really important way of of kind of sort of contextualizing a little bit our our intentionality with this like you often did in our course is you you've kind of got me out of trouble there um (laughs) because basically science is really about asking questions and you're right we can get very very dogmatic and rigid and say, this is the way things are. But what that does is closes off all the possibilities. So, you know, science, it, if you're in it for a while, uh, you, you realize just how much we don't know. And in our course, we spent a lot of time asking questions. And I think we, we got pretty good at saying, we don't know this, but it wouldn't this be interesting or, um, this is where things may be going in the future. But but you're right. Uh, I didn't mean to come off as science. Only science can explain uh, uh, this. But, you know, uh, I I've seen everything gets marketed in a in a big way and gets marketed by by people that don't have certain credentials. And I, I worry that it just becomes so confusing to people who want to know information, who want to do best by themselves and their horse, um, but not from someone who overnight created a, um, their own program. Um, and, and I like that you're saying that, Steve, because it's, it's it, I think the, the spirit of it that you're trying to speak to is this idea of like, there is a lot of pseudoscience out there. Right. And pseudoscience is one of those things that is tricky, right? Because sometimes we don't know that it's pseudoscience because it sounds sciencey, you know, like there's a lot of stuff. And I see this on social media, like a post gets shared of a photograph of a horse and a human and the write up is super flowery, you know, and, oh, this horse is co-regulating this human and it's healing its nervous system. And I go, 
record scratch, you know, can we stop for a moment and, and talk about that? Like, it sounds lovely, you know, and there can be pseudoscientific, scientific sounding fairy tales, you know, that, you know, give us a feel good sensation. But in the, in reality, it may not, it's just more jargon being used to make us feel good. And, and it's, it's sort of the idea of, um, I think, Steve, I think you might have, you know, about this, there's some really interesting research that looks at how people are very positively influenced. If you start to give a neuroscientific explanation of things, people seem to have this thing where if it's got a neuroscientific explanation, they're more likely to take it with a certain amount of credibility. They're more likely to see it as valid. And that's like a known thing in like the psychological literature. It's, it's a phenomenon. They've studied it. Um, there's influence if you start adding a neurosciency explanation to it. And I think where Steve, what you're saying, if I sort of interpret a little bit what you were sharing, earlier is this idea of not science rah 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 which i would call like scientism you know it's almost like it's its own religion but more like the idea of hey like how can we have a more intentional lens that is capable of critical thinking and curiosity and holding uncertainty as a principle and tentativeness and going hey like let's approach this with a certain amount of um, desire to not necessarily jump on a bandwagon and buy a, an explanation just because it sounds sciencey, because we both have this respect for the fact that, okay, neuroscience explanations tend to be um, valued more than other explanations, even if they're wrong. And so I think because of that, Steve and I do want to be a little bit more careful and do our due diligence and go, okay, cool. Well, what does the literature actually say? As opposed to it's only science, but it's like, hey, well, what, what is it saying? What, what does the literature say? What does the research say? So that we're not inadvertently sharing pseudoscience and contributing to that problem where it's all about, oh, well, if I give this explanation, I'm going to get more followers, or I'm going to get more people buying into what I'm saying, because people like that stuff. And that's the trend, right? We want to come from a place of integrity about this. And there's going to be stuff we don't know, there's stuff that's still being researched. And that's where Steve and I go, yeah, we don't know yet. Or hey, here's where things are at so far. And here's the cutting edge questions that we're hanging out with that we're hoping will be addressed in, in future research, you know. Which is definitely one of my favorite things about going through the courses with you guys is, um, you know, Steve being able to get in there and, and dissect a brain and, uh, being able to like reference the different areas of the brain and how that actually impacts the horse's behavior and how they respond to us and what they're doing when, when we're working with them. You know, when I first started out as a trainer, one of, um, my peers said, Oh, you know, horses can't be sad because they don't cry. I was like, well, you know, obviously they don't have the, the tear ducts to like produce the, the crying <laughs> mechanism, but you can definitely appreciate different mannerisms in the horse's behavior. And so then if we can, you know, get pro like, uh, neuroscience like Steve that can actually dig into the brain and, and see like this section, you know, is responsible for certain experiences of the horse and how are we going to interpret what those experiences are? so that it better um, affects how we implement our training tools. So I think one of the biggest problems in uh, horse training at the moment is the idea 
of like pressure release is the only way of training a horse and you need to have escalating pressure to have power over submission control over the horse. Whereas the better you get at pressure release, power over submission control and domination, the basically the worse the horse works because you're triggering an aspect of their nervous system to be self-protective, to feel threatened. They don't feel safe with you, so they're not going to learn. And and you guys can dig into like the parts of the brain that proves that a horse that is scared can't learn effectively. They're just getting reactive behaviors that get conditioned into them instead of like, you know, the curiosity doesn't work. They can't problem solve when they're in that part of the brain. And so it's like one of the things that I talk to our students is that if you treat horses like scared horses, you get scared horses. So if you're going to use tools of control, domination, force, escalating pressure, you're going to get a horse that's nervous system is responding to the way that you're treating it. Whereas if you can have some flexibility in interpreting, oh, that horse feels scared, like it's not just a flight animal, so it's running away from me. It's like, no, I'm a predator and I've put in a situation where it feels unsafe and scared of me. Can I change the way that I'm interacting with it so that it feels safe, feels safe to be vulnerable around us and feels safe to take direction from us? And then we can see a completely different horse that we didn't know was possible in the first place. What I think oh, is I'd listen to you any day, Katie. <laughs> I was I was going to say that like that's going to be the theme of our part of the theme of our conversation in our December class is the neurobiology of learning because what you're speaking to here is one of the things I see in the horse industry is this dichotomy between the pressure release folks who are like it's all pressure release and then the clicker trainer folks who are like it's all clicker training and these two camps won't talk to each other and it's kind of like the arguments that people will make from the clicker training or the more humane hierarchy sort of Lima camp at least invasive, minimally aversive camp we'll talk about as well. If you use pressure release and increasingly escalating things coming from a dominance perspective, and we know dominance theory has been kind of a myth that's been debunked, but if you're coming from that standpoint and you're using escalating pressure to induce fight, flight, or freeze, right? Then yeah, absolutely. Let's not do that, right? Because that's probably not helpful, but that doesn't mean that you can't use pressure release within a safe relationship where there is a sense of safety and a sense of connection because not all pressure release is going to be experienced as fight or flight or is going to trigger that, right? And you can actually have pressure release that isn't about let's induce dominance and shutdown, right? Like let's, you know what I mean? Like a lot of this is the intentionality, but what we often see is, oh, well, all pressure release results in this, therefore don't do pressure release, which I go, but that's not necessarily scientific either. You know, like it's swung from one polarization to the other where it's like, it's only this or it's only that and never the twain shall meet. And I'm like, well, it's actually somewhere in the middle, you know, like, you know, it's not always so black and white, you know, and then if you look at like, you know, the positive reinforcement purists, like zero aversives, like I think it's impossible to have zero aversives because sometimes we are the aversive. Like if the horse's experience to humans previously has not been good or you're like in a new environment or, um, you know, you've just bought the horse, so you don't have a relationship to the horse yet, then you are the aversive. You are the thing that is triggering the nervous system. So it has to be not so much about the tools that we're using, but how the horses are responding to the tools that you're using 
which is why I think the work that you guys are doing is so important because it's teaching us to actually read read what they're doing in response to us properly and not just being like, oh, no, that's just my horse. My horse just gets scared. My horse just gets frustrated. My horse is just stubborn. It's like, no, that's the response that they're having to the way that you work with them. So it's beautiful that like Steve can bring in, you know, the the neurobiology and the chemistry and the hormones and neurotransmitters and all those things that are happening. And then you can, Sarah, talk to like how that affects connection and relationship. And so somewhere in the middle, so um, we kind of like have pulled the negative reinforcement and positive reinforcement together into like how are you going to guide the behavior? How are you going to mark the behavior? And how are you going to motivate them to do it again? And to try and create a positive relationship to pressure where they're seeking it for direction, not using it for submission. Um, but you have to like know how to read the nervous system <laughs> to be able to do that well and not just think like, oh, it didn't work. So I have to get stronger. I have to be more bossy. I have to be the boss. I have to make a horse do it which is challenging when we go into like, you know, pony clubs and traditional training and like I run a riding school. So having school horses positively motivated to look after beginner riders is quite challenging. There's a lot of treats involved. (laughs) And so then when we start to like get into, you know, the riders get a little bit better, we do this like connection work on the ground teaching the students how to read, you know, relaxation in the horses, tension releasing, tension building, so that they can start to adjust how they're implementing their training tools. So it's not like this is black and white training tool application, but actually that feedback from the horse of like how you've used the tool, have they responded well to it? I'm not very good at taking direction. So when people come in and tell me what to my sassy pants come along, like, who are you tell me? <laughs> then you have to find like a way of working me to like be able to give me direction. <laughs> and you can kind of like see this kind of response in some of the horses is like, um, we've been doing some relaxation work with one of the horses and, you know, they can be relaxed and still not like you. One of the horses that we have, one of the riders is like beautiful experience, soft hands, gentle and actually is like using the skills beautifully and the horse's ears are forward and is like lit up when he works. And then the next student comes on and she can't remember his name, but she still has beautiful like soft hands and um, she's there though for her skill development. She just wants to learn something new each week. She's not in it for the horse. And so they, they can see that, they can feel that. I think you hit the nail on the head when you talked about <clears throat> Uh, I, I think that in the horse training world, um, we have so many programs out there that say, okay, if you do A, you're going to get B. And it's so much more complicated than that. And that think about this complication. Not only is every horse different with its own history and its own nervous system, but then you bring yours into that as well. Now look at, at all that's involved. Uh, so in it, and even if you know the neurotransmitters, some horses are are less responsive or less sensitive to those neurotransmitters, or don't produce as as many. So it's always it's always a conversation. It's always an adjustment, and that can even change over time. And sometimes, what is aversive stimuli? Let the horse tell you that. Sometimes getting their face hugged and loved on is is one of the worst things you can do to them when what they really want 
even though that may go against my horse loves me, it may be to give them room as a, as a reward. But in learning, some of the things that have to be there, always have to be there, is you have to have their attention, right? Uh, they have to feel safe. And you have to create some motivation, such as curiosity, in order to learn so that you start to get those dopamine hits. And once you lay those, those things all out together, you're you beginning to create uh, an atmosphere, an environment in which, and that goes for humans all, all throughout the mammalian research. That's definitely one of the biggest challenges that I find with building connection work is that, you know, the, the students and, and myself included, you come in goal orientated and there's certain things that you want to achieve to get your own dopamine hits. And you kind of have to like leave your dopamine hits at the gate, get somewhere else <laughs> so that you can or and- change your the way you get your dopamine hits. Maybe <laughs> ah, I got that ear focused on me for one second. Yes. Not, well, I finished trailer loading here in three hours, right? Yeah, Yeah, that's it. It's like making the goalposts achievable and, and like, smaller so that um, you're getting the horse what it needs to be able to, like, setting the horse up for success gets you your goals instead of, like, orienting yourself towards your personal goals and then putting, say, like, getting frustrated and that tension builds in yourself because you're not getting there fast enough and so that translates through to the horse and then that's when the horses tend to disconnect they disengage they don't put as much effort in we end up drilling them so they go sour on their arena work and then we have all of the behavior issues with like napping and bucking and stuff and we're like what's wrong with my horse it's like if we can adapt it to to look for small achievable steps to get an immense sense of task achievement and task satisfaction then that is like yep or how about you're responsible for what your horse is doing for their behavior you something's happening in the environment that's causing the horse to behave a certain way not that they're bad not that they're bucking not that they're doing this but those those behaviors are all communication it's telling you something uh, and you have to take responsibility if you're playing a role in 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 creating some of that. We we got to let Sarah talk here. I think she's going to be on the edge of her seat here. I'm like I'm like I'm going to let that one fly. I'm going to like all these things I want to say, and I'm like, well, we'll just cover that in the course. So if anyone's interested, at the end of our conversation today, Steve and I will talk a little bit about where you can learn more because there's Steve and I when we get together, we could just go on for hours. So, uh, but what one piece I will piggyback on is something you said earlier in relation to all of this is there's also this idea of you know, we also tend to get pigeonholed into behaviorism and operant conditioning as being the way. And and this is one of the things that I find most passionate about what I like to talk about in all of this is, well, there's so much more going on beyond behaviorism, everyone like, you know, in human psychology, we evolved beyond behaviorism a really long time ago, we're talking decades, you know, this is a while ago now. And while in the horse world, I think we have a long way to go in terms of using operant conditioning more skillfully. I think there's definitely a place for that. I think that that would benefit a lot of horses in a lot of places, you know, the timing of the reinforcers and what happens and when, and when are we using it? I think that's all really essential, you know, and there's so much more going on than just what did I reinforce, right? Like, you know, when I think about attachment theory, one of the modules we teach in our masterclass is looking a little bit at attachment, attachment, 
behaviorists have been looking at attachment through a behavioral lens. How do you create secure attachment by giving scratches and treats? I'm like, but that makes it sound like it's a positive reinforced thing. And we all know this, right? You can have experienced trauma or insecure relationships and yet your needs were met and maybe you had a warm bed and you had food, but you're not feeling safe and secure with the one that's bringing you the food. So you can't just click and treat your way into secure attachment. It's just not possible. Certainly those things can help create positive associations, but that alone is not what attachment theory is based on. And the attachment theory moved beyond behaviorism a long time ago. In fact, it came out of and left that. And so it's always kind of amusing to me when I see behaviorists talk about attachment theory as if it's something that can be clicker trained. And I'm just like, I'm not saying I'm against clicker training. I like it. I use it at times. I'm all for these different things, but it's the lens. It's, it's, it's the interpretation of it. And I go, okay, so what more is there beyond behaviorism? You know, how are we using how are we helping repattern the nervous system? How are we working with an understanding of, uh, and I think about polyvagal theory as being a really cool addition. Like how do we use that to help reshape the nervous system, help traumatize nervous systems to heal? How are we building secure attachment in our relationships? There is like, there are trauma treatment methods that were developed for humans based on mammalian science. I think of things like somatic experiencing or EMDR that are used to treat trauma in humans and somatic experiencing in particular um, is a really brilliant mammalian model that looks at how mammals under optimal conditions recover from trauma and how do we use that same knowledge to help humans do the same thing but yet who is using that with the equines who is you know why are we not bringing that back around it's like oh here's this really amazing sort of beyond behaviorism material that we're using with humans that comes out of the mammalian world. And yet with mammals, we're still stuck in behaviorism. And I'm like, well, what's going on here? Like, you know, yes, that's a, it's an important science. And there's so much beyond that, that exists. EMDR, for instance, I just had a conversation on Facebook in the last couple of days, people were talking a little bit about um, a recent clinic that one of our mutual friends was teaching and um, and they were talking a little bit about matching steps and how matching steps helped this one horse to, you know, deactivate a little bit, be a little bit more connected and and find some and find some attunement. Um, and I was talking a little bit about well, in EMDR, we use something called bilateral stimulation to help um, with resourcing the nervous system and also reprocessing particular triggers. And there are some folks who have taken the EMDR protocol and adapted it for use with mammals, like non-human mammals, like horses, dogs, cats. And it, these are things that we don't think about because we we're still in this idea of pressure release versus clicker training. And I'm like, gosh, everyone, there's so much more cool stuff out there that you don't know about. Like I get really excited about that because it's, it's like the paradigm is just getting blasted open with these researches, the, all these studies that are happening, looking at these other things and yet like who's making those connections. And so that's why I get really passionate about what I'm, Steve and I are doing and what I'm teaching separately in Equisoma is trying to bring more awareness of like this, this whole universe that is beyond just this, these polarizations of this camp versus this camp. I'm like, gosh, I wish I, I would love for you all to see just how much bigger it really is. And it's so cool. It's so cool. What's coming to light now. You're right. That universe is vast. And, and, you know, the more that we see, you know, we can do neuroimaging now of, of horses. We can look at brains. We can put EEGs on, on horses and look at electrical activity. And so, you know, they're getting a voice 
And maybe that voice won't always stand up and support these theories because we all these things are theories. And what we've gotten away from is being able to discuss and in, in a in a gentle way, uh, exact, you know, all these ideas because we've fallen into these camps and, and trainers as well. You know, it's, it becomes a big social event and you belong to this group of people and you'll be ostracized if you start to look outside that, that group. And that's your social group as well as, as you know, your, your place to go for learning. So if you get caught in these rigid columns and you can't speak to people outside of those and you can only believe one theory, you know, at least we, we know, Sarah and I, that what we present this year, five years from now, it's going to be remade. We're going to have new information to weave into this. And it's always evolving. But these rigid camps, and sometimes they get left by the wayside, as you say, and they don't even know it. They're on their island of isolation and holding fast. And there's just too much cognitive dissonance, you know, uh, because that's your whole identity is tied to what you've been saying for years that you can't allow new knowledge in. And where does that get you in the in the long run? I do think that as an industry moving forward away from our traditional practices, like being able to take forward what works and recognizing, well, maybe we misread that part is we are going to have to address the shame that we feel personally for practices that we have done. Cause there's a hundred percent like things that I have done that, you know, my coaches have made me do that I look back at now. Like I nearly quit the industry altogether. 15 years ago because I couldn't be the person that um, I was being told to be to be successful in the industry and so that's when I started looking for other ways of working with the horses but you can think of like all the people who are still holding strong to these training theories part of moving away from it is accepting that the horse is a sentient being and that the impact that you've had on them using these training theories it's like you know, one of the things that I've been working on in the last couple of years is like, how can I get the response from the horse without being the trauma? You know, a lot of our training techniques is like responding, uh, speak, like getting a horse to respond to us by speaking them into reactivity and then trying to control fear and then spooking reactivity and then controlling fear and then spooking reactivity. And then you end up with like, you know, more severe controlling mechanisms. And then you're, you know, in the saddle and you put spurs on to get them more forward. And then they're too forward. So you get a stronger bit in and now they're behind your legs. So you need a whip and then you need a stronger, you know, we need to be able to address the shame of like that experience to say that wasn't good enough as an industry. Can we move forward? I think really like we're either going to have to completely reshape the judging arena or we're going to have to move away from shows altogether as like a metric for how our performance and how we work with our horses goes. And this is where I think we're talking a little bit and moving into this conversation around trauma in the equestrian world, you know, and, and the polarizations that we see, I mean, within the trauma community, those of us who deal in trauma as our trade, 
usually a polarized response where it's all black or all white is evidence of a trauma pattern that's splitting. Right. And so, and what Steve, you were talking about is like, this is my community. This is my ivory tower. This is where I find belonging. If, 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 part of what makes it hard to leave that community is if part of your trauma was a lack of belonging, was a lack of attention, was a lack of connection, was a lack of acceptance and approval. And you found that and it's self-reinforcing to be within this community because it's a little echo chamber and we're all feeling that same thing. And for all, you know, if we all have that as a nervous system and a relational experience, and then we find this sort of like-mindedness, like nervous system-edness <laughs> in this polarized camp, then it's like, oh, I, this is meeting my need on some very primordial level, you know, that this is like, oh, wow, I finally feel seen and heard and now I feel justified. And, and then I get to stay in this little echo chamber over here where it feels safe. And then everyone else is the bad guy, you know, everything else is wrong or bad. And that you, again, like, let's be curious about that because that in and of itself is a trauma response or can be. And, and so the same thing again, when you say shame right, and the cognitive dissonance, what's behind cognitive dissonance is, you know, is shame often is I don't want to sit with the, the fact that the very thing that I'm preaching may very well be something that I have actually caused harm about. You know, sometimes I find those that are the most polarized are those who have the biggest blind spots around their own shame, around the fact that they themselves are maybe misattuned or they themselves have caused harm and how they've been able to sort of absolve themselves of that rather than face it with a lot of compassion and love and, and healing is to just go, well, I'm going to come over here and have a soapbox, you know, and I'm going to be this rah, rah, rah. But in reality, I may very well be still engaging in another version of the very thing that I used to do, but it's now covertly done under this other label. But I, it's, it's just another blind spot, you know, and so if we're going to talk about changing in the equine world, we do need to look at this idea of how are we healing our own trauma patterning, right? You said, Katie, about like, oh, well, the student that comes and they, they're task oriented, and they're not getting those dopamine hits. And it's like, well, I need to get this done. It's like, how many people wind up in an equestrian discipline at a very young age, you know, when they're still at that tender time in development where they're learning about secure attachment and unconditional love and and they get into a high level discipline. I think of like, you know, performance athletes, right? And equestrians, some of them do wind up on the performance athlete sort of circuit. And, and the psychology behind performance athletes, there's a lot of attachment relational trauma embedded in that where, you know, maybe I have parents or families that are, you know, love is conditional, you have to earn that, you know, I don't feel safe in relationship. And because it's dependent upon how I perform and what I produce, and I have to earn that attention from my parents or my caregivers. And then I wind up in a sport where the coaching is the same. And then that sets me up for a greater likelihood that I might be influenced to do things that I don't want to do because of wanting to please the coach, you know, and what if that coach also has a trauma history where they were, their parents were heavy handed with them and they learned to shut up and put up and, and just shut down and they are disconnected from their own stuff. And they're more likely to perpetuate these things. And so there's a lot of unresolved trauma I find in the equestrian world. And if a lot of equines are in captivity and domesticated, 
And I mean, which domesticated horse hasn't been weaned early? I mean, there's some that are not, obviously. And, you know, that's wonderful for those who haven't been. But, but for those who have been weaned early, I mean, we, we there's a lot of really interesting research looking at the impacts of early weaning on horse socialization and horse development and their capacity and their nervous system tolerances and, and all sorts of things. And so if we've got a traumatized quote unquote horse population and we've got traumatized humans and now we've got this traumatized equestrian industry, you know, like where do we begin? And I think that's where, you know, Steve and I, we get really excited because it's like, Hey, like this is all, this all makes a lot of sense. You know, can we start approaching these topics with compassion and openness and humanity and appreciation for our mammalianness and hold shame with a, a, a looser hand you know, coming from that more mid-range place where it's like, you know, we've all been there. We've made mistakes. I had times where I've been dysregulated and was punitive and I hate admitting it, but we're not going to get anywhere if we're not being kind with ourselves and then learning to work with our own nervous system patterns and learning to work with our own attachment stuff and learning to heal what's driving our behavior so that our horses get a different experience. I went to the UK and I was asked to give talks to a lot of different groups and even some of those that are behind creating rules and regulations that have been there forever had told me, you know, when you talk about the neurology of the horse, it almost makes some of what we do um, almost seem like it, it belongs in the Middle Ages. Like we haven't really gone beyond that because it's so out of tune with what's actually going on under the hood, so to speak, with the, with the horse. And I think that that I'm optimistic that a horse that's comfortable, a horse that's safe, a horse that's put in the best environments that can learn optimally, that those horses are actually going to be better for everyone involved. And I know that there are people in certain schools of, of horsemanship that say, I always knew in my heart, I always knew there was a gut feeling that when people said, don't let the horse get over on you, you kick them harder, pull them, you know, you need to be firmer. Maybe you're not a good horseman because you're not. And then people question themselves and their own self-worth, you know, because they weren't able to do, but they knew somewhere back there. And I think what we can do is if we have dialogue and we really look at the science we can give legitimacy to a lot of those people that said, you know, I am worth something and doggone it. I knew what I was feeling was right. There's a, a lot of fear like in that as well. So I started training and breaking 17 years ago and I had a horse that had experienced a lot of abuse before I got him and he had taught me a lot of my horse women because <laughs> it was just you either like we're gonna fall off or you weren't so you weren't to attack <laughs> and you're either catching catching him or you weren't so you learn how to approach him and, and those kinds of things and so when I started breaking and training I didn't sack horses out and desensitize them and whatnot and I got a lot of criticism for that for like creating dangerous horses and so I was like oh like am I going to be creating dangerous horses? Like you really do doubt and question yourself because these are old people have experience. You're not allowed to like question their practices. You know, am I making my students unsafe by not doing this traditional practice that's supposed to make horses safer? So there's like 
there's the the fear of what does a horse positively engaged look like you know like even the unpacking when you've not given the horse opportunity to like consent the work that you do with it and you go through emotionally unpacking the baggage the behavior does get significantly worse for a period of time before you reshape it and so if you hit that point and you're already questioning yourself then you're going to see that behavior and go oh no I've I've done it wrong I'm doing something wrong I'm not the right person for this horse or and you, you know you do back off you don't know how to to work through it in a way that is supportive to the horses well, and this is where the understanding of the nervous system is so important and why it's so essential to understand what's happening in our own nervous systems and perhaps how we and our coaches and trainers and influencers have learned how to cope in life. If our, if our lineage has said you need to shut down, bottle things up, keep things at bay, be obedient, follow the rules, and this is how you're going to survive in your life. And you've learned how to manage and suppress as a management strategy or as a coping strategy, then yeah, we're going to try to create horses using that same mentality. It's like, no, just keep bottling that up. No, just keep bottling that up. And and we're going to do that thing. And so when horses start to feel safe and horses start to come out of some of that functional freeze that we call it in somatic experiencing or some of that like management that's that sort of push button I'm just going to tune out and do the things that you request of me suddenly they start to come out of that and start to come into a little bit more opinionatedness and the fight response kicks in or all the things that didn't get to happen previously because they went into shutdown and appeasement pretty early all that stuff like if we haven't worked through our own thwarted fight response if we haven't worked through our own like the stuff that we have have suppressed, then yeah, we're going to be terrified at sitting with the horse while it renegotiates what's going on in its nervous system, what's stuck in the queue for it until it comes back down and then is in a different place where we can meet together. But if I haven't done that work within myself, there's no way I'm going to be able to feel safe and feel comfortable being with the bigness of what's been suppressed in the horse. So it does require us to kind of go, hey, like I need to do this work too. But if we don't know this, then absolutely, Katie, it makes complete sense that we would start to lose trust in ourselves and go, well, all these authorities say this. It's like, yeah. And then if we explode that out and take a much wider view and go, so that's interesting, you know? Yeah. Can we talk about co-regulation? So um, when I had my son, I did circle of security and mm-hmm. loved it and love um like the nonverbal eye contact communication of being overwhelmed and connect, uh, overwhelmed and disengaged or connected and like seeking direction. Um, I think as a way, like as a communication of learning, like teaching others that aspect of it, uh, and the idea of like going out in adventure together and then the stimulus of the adventure together, dysregulating nervous systems. So the idea is that as the well, my interpretation of it applied to horses is that you want to go out and adventure with them as a regulated nervous system to help support them through and navigate that challenge. And then you're coming back from the adventure with the dysregulated nervous system and like regulating it and then going back out in adventure together. 
Um, for me, like as doing circle of security, my biggest one was like the receiving and the receiving the dysregulated nervous system and regulating it and sending them back out. I'm always good on the adventure, like go explore, but I'm not good at receiving on the other side. Uh, so for my students, when I talk to them about it, their biggest question is like, how do I regulate a nervous system? How do I provide a su- support for the horses on the other side where they've like, you know, blown out their fear response by something unexpected or like you haven't done your shaping plan properly. And so you have accidentally overfaced yourself and your horse and like, like how do you come back and co-regulate? <laughs> Maybe what I can say is this, and Steve, I want to be mindful of your time because I know that we have like time constraints for our our meeting today. But one of the things I was going to say is this speaks to some of the bits and pieces we talk about in our masterclass, because we're going to talk about about the value of titration, the value of watching for stimulus stacking. It's not so like I love circle of security as well. I love some of the principles of it. And I think it can be even more nuanced than that. So it's not just I go out, I dysregulate, and then I come back and I re-regulate. How are we tracking that throughout the whole sequence? Mm -hmm. Right? So that it's not, oh, I go out and then I'm, I'm beyond threshold. And woo, how do I come back? It's like, oh, let's actually modulate that as we go along and work with progressively different thresholds and work with some of these principles we're going to talk about in the program. So I would say maybe stay tuned because there's definitely so much more nuance, you know, than any one model. And this is where I think what Steve and I bring to the table is so exciting because we're pulling together all sorts of things and saying, yeah, and this through this lens can be, you know, and here's where we can finesse this even further, you know, and that's, and that's what I'm excited about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we don't have time to do the deep dive, but we can in 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 the course. But we're talking about this, even making changes on a cellular level. Your cells will actually change, and what what we know, and we're getting to know even better about our social connection, is that our brains need other people's neurons. We each need each other's neurons to work together. That's why things like solitary confinement are so, such a terrible torture. No prisoner wants to do that if they've ever been through it before, because we need that joint firing. And with that, uh, I'll just throw those tidbits out, are things that we're going to address in the neurobiology of learning. It reminds me of the quote from Daniel Stern, who is a psychologist, I believe, who said, we are all born to participate in each other's nervous systems. And I'll leave it at that. And perhaps what we could do is talk about our programs and maybe we can wrap up here because I just want to be mindful of time. Um, And so Equiscience, we've got, um, we're very, very excited. So our our next offering that's coming up uh, is, I believe, December 17th, and that's Pacific time. So not December 17th, perhaps Australian time. It'll probably be more just like December 18th for all of you over there. Um, but um, we have the times on the website. So I believe it's December 17th. Is that correct, Steve? Yes. For our yes. focus mm-hmm. course. So we've got a, a short course on December 17th, looking at the neurobiology of learning. So we're going to have a, a, a little crash course there, Steve and I, about understanding the neuroscience behind learning 
and some of these topics in a little bit more of a, a deeper dive sort of way, um, looking at some of these topics we've talked about today. And then our masterclass that we did run for the first time this past year, we're running it again, starting on January 21st, 2023. We're really excited about that. So that's our seven module program that we ran it over seven months. Um, and we cover a lot of these topics and more um, over a seven month period. And then by the end of all of that, we're super stoked, Steve and I, because in February 2024, it sounds like a long way away, but it's really not. Um, February 2024, we are running our first in-person live educational slash wellness retreat um, at Apache Springs Ranch in Arizona uh, with horses and brain dissections and ceremony and experiential learning and lectures and opportunity for self-care and reflection and just nerding out amongst kin. So we're really, really thrilled about these upcoming um, upcoming offerings. And Steve, I wanted to give you a chance to chat a little bit about your independent offerings, and then I'll share a little bit about mine as well. Um, well, we are actually, Sarah and I are going to be together again here in San Antonio, just a few weeks from now uh, at Warwick Schiller's uh, uh, summit, uh, Journey on Summit, uh, we're each going to give an individual uh, talk based on TED Talks, uh, TikToks, right? Teaching. Um, Teaching Smart Connect, I think, were the three words that they were using. But, for and Sarah yeah. and I are also going to be on a panel together with Nashon Cook and Karen Rolfe. Uh, and attunement is is the topic that they've given us uh, to discuss. So we've been taking notes on all of that. I have a virtual clinic that I do with Martin Black. Uh, he co-authored Evidence-Based Horsemanship with me. So uh, on martinblack.net, you can find uh, quarterly where we do a virtual clinic. And then uh, I'm redoing my website, uh, horsebrainscience.info. And uh, I'll be listing all the horse brain seminars that I do. I do one that's, that almost always is really well attended with Mark Rashid and Jim Masterson. And we're finding, and, and Sarah and I talk about this as well, is that you get in trouble if you just stay within your discipline. You get rigid and you get dogmatic. But oftentimes, just a slight shift, in a slight shift in your neural connections actually can create big changes. And so uh, working with Mark Rashid and, and Jim Masterson and then doing the brain science thing where we're all sort of blending and weaving this together um, is uh, an offering that's coming up in, in July. And I'll add in too about this as well with Equisoma. So Equisoma is uh, a program that I developed in with the licensing approval of Somatic Experiencing International. Uh, and it's a really in-depth multi-year training program slash personal growth program for professionals in various equine industries. So Steve, when you talk about that idea of not just staying in your, in your silo, but kind of expanding and getting all the richness from that, that's, that's what we do in Equisoma as well. So Equisoma is a 
training program that attracts not just equine assisted psychotherapy and learning professionals, although people often assume that's what Equisoma is. It's not. Uh, we do have a number of people from that world, but we also get horse trainers and clicker trainers and equine behavior consultants and natural horsemanship folks. And we get equine body workers and animal communicators and basically anyone who has a professional scope of practice working with equines and people. And basically we go into real depth around, you know, how are we using some of these concepts, working with somatic experiencing, working with polyvagal theory, working with attachment theory, working with ethology, and actually teaching concrete frameworks and skills uh, to help the professionals transform their own nervous systems over a period of time. We start online first all the professionals in the program have to commit to doing a certain number of personal sessions of somatic experiencing as part of their own nervous system transformation, uh, consultations, assignments, and so on. There's assigned readings. And then level two, um, once you've completed your level one, we meet in person at various locations around the world and look at how do we support equine human trauma recovery? How are we using a lot of the concepts that we're talking about here, but really in an applied way, how, what are some ways that we can help support the nervous system of the human and of the horse to grow their capacity, grow their window of tolerance, learn how to be with sensations, learn how to remain or find the, the, the safety of connection again. How do we hone attunement skills? This isn't just sort of top down. This is all about the relational um uh, what's the word? It's like the soft skills of how are we, how are we being in relationship? And yet it's extremely technical at the same time. You know, how, how do we recognize when a nervous system is starting to shift states? How do we work with that? You know, and so it's, it's really, really powerful. And it's really, really cool to see all these professionals, how their nervous systems heal. And, and then seeing how the equines heal as well. How do we support the conditions for equines to show up differently? Um, and, and recover. And, and we love running these, especially at farms where there are a number of rescued animals. That's not always true of all of our locations, but certainly a number of our locations have a, a, a number of rescued animals where you can actually watch and witness their recovery and the changes in their nervous system over time as well. So it's really, really exciting work. So that's our next cohorts for level one start in 2023 as well. So that's on my separate website, uh, E-Q-U-U-S-O-M-A.com, equisoma.com. And the links will be there as well. And then there's our Steve's website too, and my website. So his website will be there. Mine will be there. And our, of course, our shared Equiscience website will be there as well. So we're really excited about our collaboration, Steve, I think this is the one thing we keep coming back to is just how hopeful it feels to yeah. kind of sort of be part of this revolution that's happening. There's so much changing and it's really a humbling privilege to be able to kind of be part of that and to, to help hold a space for people to find curiosity and approach topics that maybe has have felt really scary in the past or are um, out of reach in the past. Yeah, the world is changing. And I, I think in, in a good way uh, with programs like yours, Katie. So thanks for helping <laughs> s spread the word. Uh, it's, uh, it's been a pleasure being on your show. Oh, I have adored having you guys. I was so excited when you were able to make it on here and confirm dates. It was 
just been geeking out on your work for the last year and just trying to like get it all stuck in my brain that I still butcher the terminology and I still need to review like the the actual theory. I'm definitely not a neuroscientist. <laughs> beautiful thing about it, you don't have to get all the jargon right to be yeah. able to be differently in relationship. Ultimately, the language and the fancy words are one thing, but really it's about how you're living it. And how are you being in your nervous system? And that's not something that can come from jargon. That's really, how are you embodying it within yourself? I think it's really like the permission to do what we already felt like we should be doing. You know, when I talk to my peers that watch like the trainings that I provide, they're like, oh, imagine if who we could have been if we had had this 10 years ago, like how much differently we would have done things. And I think it'll just keep going like that right we we have to be able to recognize our faults and be comfortable with them <laughs> so that we can do the best we can with where we're at yeah. at the uh at the time and look to you guys so that you can keep sharing all this amazing knowledge with us and doing the hard hard yards of the actual like science <laughs> and i think and again, i'd also add that that you you and everyone out there, you're scientists. You go out and you communicate with your horse and you try things and you get and you work through things. And so you're always getting evidence. You're always an empirical evidence is real evidence. And if, and if Steve and I can be part of this modeling of, hey, it's okay to make mistakes. Hey, it's okay not to know. And if, you know, as Steve and I do our best to walk our talk, we're not perfect people. We've made mistakes. We miss a tune at times. We we have times where this happens. And I think um, if we can be part of this, this change in paradigm and part of what makes it possible to approach this change in paradigm and be forgiving with ourselves and give ourselves permission is when people walk their talk and try to model and hold a safe space to say, Hey, cool. It's okay. We're going to dysregulate at times. We're going to get it. We're going to miss a tune. So how do we repair that? How do we move forward from here? It's not so much about doing it perfectly, but attunement and trust and relationship and secure relationships are built when we make the mistakes and we go, okay, cool. Okay. How do I, how did I catch that? Not go into shame and shut down, but just go, okay, let's, let's do that differently. And that requires us to be kind with ourselves. And that means Steve and I also have to admit when we, when we make mistakes, you know, actually it's not bad. Sometimes when you make a mistake, that is, is really tells you what path not to go down. And it actually is a great learning tool to show, look at, I, you can be vulnerable enough to make mistakes and they tell you something. We call them mistakes and we put the, you know, all the, labels on that and create a story about that being bad but think about it all throughout history many of our pathways are littered with well we went down this road and that didn't work and here's evidence that this probably wasn't the best idea and uh that's what this evolving knowledge is all about it's we we find the thresholds by missing the thresholds Yeah. We bumble our way and go, whoops, that was a little bit yeah, where I exactly. Okay, great. We learned something. I think well, I this is <laughs> it can be very <laughs> right. And it's like, exactly. oh yeah, we're gonna bump up against edges because people often get scared and go, Oh crap, I, I've been doing it wrong all these years, therefore I need to do it differently, but I don't know what that means yet. So I'm gonna do nothing. 
again, the polarization. It's like, actually, no, it's like, though we, we repair and develop trust by through the misattunements and the, the bumping up against the edges. And then it's like, oh, okay, cool. Now I know where you are. And now I know what your capacity is. And then we can grow from there. And it's that recalibration based on those little moments yeah. of, you know, rupture and repair and misattunement and reattunement. That's how the trust in the relationship gets built, you know? And so we want to encourage that willingness to be exploratory, to be, you know, experimental, to be willing to kind of get to know one another. And that is a vulnerable thing. And if, if you, you know, never touch that ceiling of the window of tolerance, your window yeah. of tolerance remains this big, yeah. right? And you can live like that, but you're cutting out everything out there yeah you want to open that window and sometimes that means how far how did i know i went too far well you have to go too far to know you went too far Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. and yeah and then we recalibrate and that's that's part of it so let's leave it here because we're getting into like we can (laughs) keep going so katie we're leaving it up to you because sarah and i we do this every time (laughs) okay let's tune off but one more thing (laughs) And three hours later, somebody takes a shepherd's crook and pulls us off of the, <laughs> off of the stage. We're going to left, you know, at some point. Yeah. So maybe, maybe we could take our leave and just say to everybody, you know, we look forward to seeing you at one of our future events, whether that's Equiscience or Steve's stuff or my stuff. Um, we, we look forward to welcoming you to the herd, you know, this growing herd, um, this revolution in the herd. Absolutely. Beautiful. Yeah, loved talking to you guys today. All of those links will be in the show notes. And hopefully I get to talk to you guys again soon. (laughs) If you're loving what you're listening to on the podcast, you might be starting to recognize that trying to control your horse through submission-based training is the worst way to ask your horse to look after you. If you're working with or riding horses, you know how unpredictable and sometimes scary they can be. Unfortunately, most struggling horse riders make the mistake of thinking they can physically control their 400 plus kilo fur babies by moving their feet or spooking them into responding with flags and join up. Without giving your horse a reason to care about you and look after you, you will most likely end up with a horse that is disconnected at best, shut down or explosive at worst because they can't communicate their needs with you, especially if you are already scared, worried or nervous handling your horse. That's why we've created our new free online training experience, Building a Connection with Your Horse. This is how I've gone about creating safe horses for beginners, no matter the breed or previous handling experiences. If you want to learn the secret source behind developing safe horses that care about you and look after you without trauma-triggering training methods, register for our new training today at www.equestriummovement.com forward slash connection. And I will uncover the three big mistakes you might be making if you're trying to build a relationship with your horse and how you can start building your horse's trust and confidence in you as a leader worth following.